0: All right, if y'all are coming in, come on in and grab a seat. We got a little handout. If you didn't get one, you can share. I'll also be referencing some of these verses as we go along. So if you don't have one, that's okay, Uh, but it might make it easier for you to follow along. Today we are talking about one of my favorite topics uh, and also a topic that I think is one of Jesus' favorite topics, which is something known as the kingdom of God. All right, so when I ask theology students uh, what Jesus talks about the most, and by the way, I think that's an important question. We're big on Jesus. We like Jesus. We want to know what does Jesus talk about the most. When I've asked that question, I get a bunch of different answers. So I've heard people say money. I've actually heard several people say that Jesus talks the most about money. That's not true. He does mention money several times at several occasions, but that's not the thing he talks about the most. I've heard people say that what Jesus talks about the most is love. Jesus mentions love throughout the Gospels. There's, the word love mentioned plus or minus about 50 times throughout all four Gospels together. So he talks about love a lot, but it's not the thing that he talks about the most. The thing that Jesus talks about the most, and by the way, there is not a close second, is the concept known as the kingdom of God. Okay. The word kingdom in the gospels is mentioned 118 times. The word king is mentioned 57 times. So, in everything that Jesus talks about, this is far and away the things he talks about the most. This is the a big topic, it's an important topic. Let me jog your memory, ready? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a field. The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come among you. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. That is the message that Jesus is most often pushing. And so what we're going to try to do today is to figure out what on earth does that mean? What is this concept of the kingdom of God and what is it not, okay? This is today what we're talking about in New Testament. So last week we talked about what happens before the New Testament to give us some background with intertestamental literature. Today we're gonna actually jump a little bit into the New Testament and we're gonna look at one of, if not the central message in the New Testament, which is something known as the kingdom of God. It is the gospel. Basically we're gonna try to answer the question today, what is the gospel, all right? Now, Let's talk a little bit about the word gospel because I feel as though the word gospel has become nuanced over time to where there's times where we use it today, even in the evangelical church, where it doesn't have exactly the same meaning as it's used in the New Testament. So maybe a good example of this is uh, the word nice. Um, you know, so when, if I say that somebody's nice, what I mean is that they're a pleasant person or a kind person or something like this. But the original term nice, when it was originally came out something about 400 years ago, it meant foolish or stupid. And it's been used in so many different ways that today it means the opposite of that. It means nice or kind. I I actually think I like using it the old way better. So if someone cuts me off in traffic this week, I'll be like, what a nice guy, as he drives by or something. But I think the same kind of thing has happened with the term gospel, where we start to use the term gospel in a way that's okay, that's not wrong necessarily, but it's not, it doesn't encompass everything the New Testament wants us to think about when we hear the phrase gospel. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so let's talk about this term gospel. Uh, It's from the Greek word euangelion, okay? It looks like this in in English letters, euangelion. You, this prefix, means good. Think of like a eulogy. It's a a logos, a word of somebody that's good, like at a funeral. You means good, and angelion is a message, okay? And angelos is where we get our word angel or messenger. Why? Because angels are messengers of God, so the idea is that it's you if you've heard the gospel means good news or a good message that's where that comes from. It's where we get our words evangelical or evangelism. When we're doing evangelism, we're sharing the good news, the gospel, the good message with outsiders, okay? So, what I want to do is I want to talk about how the term gospel is used and I want to make the case that when the Bible uses gospel, it is almost always, there may be a few exceptions, but almost always, at least in the vast majority of cases, talking about something known as the kingdom of God. Everybody with me? Okay, so when we say gospel, we usually mean one of three things in uh, typical churches in the South and evangelicalism. We mean, sometimes we mean personal salvation. Personal salvation. Now, let me just be really clear. Do we believe in personal salvation? Yes. All right. Let's make sure we never become so sophisticated that we can't tell people how to meet Jesus. All right. So personal salvation is absolutely true. So I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is that the gospel is even bigger than that. It's kind of like this. Is two plus two four? Yes. Is that the gospel? No, but it's still true. So I'm not denying these things. I think these things are true. So just be really clear. I believe that people can personally be saved by Jesus. I just want to be clear that I think the gospel is a bigger message than this, and I'll show you this in just a second with some of these texts. Number two, sometimes when we use the term gospel, we mean the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay? Justification by faith. And forgive me if I spell things incorrectly. Uh, I'm just a terrible speller, and I feel like uh, the iPhone has made me even a worse one. So it does all the spelling for me. I haven't had to look up a word in, I don't know, 10 years. So sometimes when we use the term gospel, we mean the doctrine of justification by faith. Again, do we and do I believe that one is justified by faith alone in Christ? Yes. Yes and amen. Okay? So we, we agree that both of these are true concepts, but I would say that neither one of these fully encompasses what the New Testament teaches about the gospel. Okay? In this first one, we usually go up to somebody and we say something like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. If you invite Jesus into your heart, you can go to heaven when you die. And not only is that an inadequate expression of the gospel, but it's just focused on you. It's just focused on you and your relationship with Christ. Which, again, I want you to have some focus there because the Bible does. But the the gospel is bigger than that. And with this one, justification by faith, the good news here is that you don't have to do anything to earn it. All right? The good news is that you don't have to do anything to earn by simply coming before God, throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting in him, calling on him as king, you can now go from an enemy of God to being seen as a friend of God, and that's true, okay? That's true. But I think that there is a bigger phrase that better fits into what we mean when we say gospel, and it's this phrase that we're talking about today, the third one here, kingdom of God kingdom, sorry, you're never supposed to turn your back on an audience, so I'm just breaking all kinds of rules, kingdom of God, okay, again, not only do I have, not only do I misspell words, but my, uh, I write like a terrorist, and so I'm sorry for my terrible handwriting, the message of the kingdom of God is a bigger message, it is a cosmic message of something that God is doing, and two things I want you to know about this, I want you to know that the, the gospel one involves an element of story, sorry, story, you're not even gonna be able to see this now, And I want you to know that it's cosmic, okay? It involves a message of a story, and I want you to know that it's cosmic. The gospel is bigger than just what we deal with, but it does include what we deal with, okay? It's kind of a both and in this. Everybody with me so far? There's a lot of stuff going on. Okay, let's look specifically at some of these passages that I handed you, and I want to show you why certain definitions of the gospel fit better than others, so let's look at this first one. You can open your Bible if you'd prefer, but I put them here just for quick reference. Galatians 3.8 says this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, see, we believe in justification by faith. It's right there in the passage. Justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. According to that passage, what is the gospel that is preached to Abraham in the Old Testament? Somebody shout it out. It's right there in the text. All the nations will be blessed. Absolutely right. Okay? So, though Abraham was justified by faith, Romans 4 teaches us that, that's not the message that Galatians 3 here is calling the gospel. What it's saying the good news or the gospel is, in this case, is that all of the world would be touched by God's Messiah, that all of the world would be touched by the Savior, that through his seed, all of the nations would be blessed. Again, you're seeing a bigger cosmic story about reaching people for Christ. You're seeing a bigger cosmic story of God putting the world back to rights, getting us back to Eden, if you will. Let's look at the next one. By the way, uh, Peter gives me a tremendous amount of hope in the Bible because he's not only always getting it wrong, but he denies Christ and he still gets to be an apostle. And then even in Galatians, he doesn't get it. Paul has to rebuke him publicly in the book of uh, Galatians for his uh, misunderstanding of the gospel. But look what it says here, Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, by the way, Cephas is Peter, all right? Kepha in Aramaic is Rock. And then Petros in Greek is rock. So sometimes he's called Cephas, Kepha, and sometimes he's called Peter. Same guy, okay? Cephas before, or Cephas before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So in this passage, Paul is rebuking Peter for forgetting the gospel. What here does Peter forget? Does Peter forget personal salvation? Does Peter personally again deny Christ? No. Does Peter forget that we cannot earn our salvation, but rather it's given to us as a gift? All of a sudden, Peter's trying to earn it. He does not. What he forgets is that the gospel is made not just for Jew, but also for Gentile, that God's message is meant to go to the whole world, okay? One of the reasons God hates racism is because it tries to keep Abraham's seed from being a blessing to all nations, okay? You see that going on in this passage. So in that passage we just looked at, the gospel was cosmic, going to all nations. Here in this passage, we see that what Peter forgets when he forgets the gospel, he doesn't forget one of these two concepts. He forgets that the gospel is meant to go to Gentiles as well. And he's denying the gospel by stepping away from certain kinds of people and not having fellowship with them. Okay? Let's look at the next one. Mark fourteen nine. This is Jesus. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. So let me ask you this question. Jesus just said that whenever the gospel is preached, this lady's story will be told, this lady who showed Jesus this act of kindness. Do you mention this lady when you share the gospel? How many times have you said, Oh, and by the way, in addition to Jesus dying on a cross, being raised, there was also this lady that did this kind act to Jesus, and he wanted us to remember that. See, the gospel is a story. In Jesus' mind, it's this story that's meant to be told about who he is and what he's done. And so a lot of times we try to think about how can I make the gospel a 30-second soundbite. By, and by the way, there are times to do that. Amen? There are times where I know that I'm not going to see someone again or God just opens a door and I think, you know what? I'm going to tell this person about Christ. I might have 30 seconds, but that's better than nothing. But there are other times when we're proclaiming the gospel that Jesus seems when he uses this word gospel, when he uses euangelion, he's expecting it for for it to be a bigger story, okay? A bigger story about who he is and what he's done. Let's look at another one. I have a tendency, I want to do, I want to throw a bunch of text at you so you see there's a pattern here in how we think about the gospel. Luke 9, 6. Now, this one will really stress you out with how Jesus uses the word gospel because he doesn't even mention his death or resurrection, all right? Luke 9, 6. And they departed and went through the villages, here it is, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What does the word gospel mean in that passage? It means kingdom of God. When he says, go preach the gospel, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. He has not been raised yet in this passage where he's talking to his disciples. What he's saying is the gospel certainly includes the death and resurrection of Christ. I affirm that. I'll get to that in just a second. But what he's saying is that there is a bigger cosmic message of God fixing what has gone wrong in the world. So as you preach the gospel, that involves going to towns, casting out demons, healing people, disciples. So disciples, as you do this, heal someone and say, God's kingdom has started. Cast out a demon and say, God's kingdom has started. There is, again, a story and a bigger cosmic message of God destroying his enemy. Jesus says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And our personal salvation plays into that larger story. Okay? Everybody with me so far? I know there's a lot of text. We're going to clarify this up in a second. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the Evangelion I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is the gospel? The Bible is going to tell us explicitly. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Okay, so here's how I want you to think of the gospel. Let me erase my scribblings here, my hieroglyphics. Here's, what I want you, here's how I want you to think of the gospel. I want you to think of the gospel as, do I have a black marker? Here it is, so you guys can see. I want you to think of the gospel as this huge circle, and let's label that circle kingdom of God. I'm going to put cog all right, that means kingdom of God. Okay, so uh, I just don't want to write it all out. So, kingdom of God. And in the middle of that circle, I want you to put death, burial, and resurrection. What I would like to try to show you today and encourage you in today is that the gospel is not merely that we're justified by faith, though that's true. It's not merely that we can personally be saved by Christ, although that's true. Christ, when he dies for his church, his church is made up of people, us. But I want you to see that the gospel is a bigger message about what God is doing in putting the world back to rights. The, the gospel's not first and primarily about us. It's about God, amen? God is conquering his enemies. God is calling sinners to himself. God is receiving glory. God is remaking the universe. God is going to eventually have a new heavens and new earth. That he is is redeemed and purged. That's the gospel. And at the center of that, how does God do it? How does God conquer the enemy? How does God break in his kingdom? How does God do all these things? He does it through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the way the king starts the kingdom. That is the way the king conquers and defeats a, or uh, uh, delivers a decisive death blow to the enemy is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so with that in mind, what is the gospel, okay? Let's talk about what it's not. Let's talk about what the kingdom of God is not. When we have a tendency, so I said at the beginning when we started that Jesus uses this phrase kingdom of God all the time. The kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like this. When we read that, we have a tendency to automatically assume that that just means heaven. That's what we we think. We think the kingdom of God, or in Matthew it's called the kingdom of heaven, same thing, by the way, despite what you might have been told growing up, it's the same thing, that we think because that language is used, it's just a synonym for heaven. Going to heaven is like this, or going to heaven is like this, and that's not how that term is usually used. It's used that way sometimes. That's not typically how it's used, though. The way the kingdom of God or the gospel is used in the New Testament is to say this. All those promises in the Old Testament about God reconciling Gentiles to himself about God pouring out his spirit on his people, about God sending a Messiah and a deliverer has begun in Christ. Okay? So I want to give you a few uh, things that the kingdom of God is not, and then we'll we'll talk about what it is. You can't just describe something through negatives. Try it sometime. Uh, And so we will describe what it's not, and then we'll talk about what it is. So number one, the kingdom of God is not always just used as a synonym for heaven. All right, it's a synonym for heaven. That's how we have a tendency to read it. We just think Jesus is talking about heaven, and it divorces all that he's doing down here. And we just think, okay, good things are in the future. It's not, when he uses kingdom of God, merely a political regime change. All right? That's what a lot of uh, Jews were really hoping for during the ministry of Christ, is that he would just come and overthrow Rome. They're thinking, Rome is ruling over us, like we learned about last time. And because Rome's ruling over us, they're the problem. And so when the Messiah comes, he'll get rid of Rome. And Jesus shows up and says, your problem's not Rome. In fact, you don't want God to get rid of your enemies yet because you're them. You're God's enemies right now. There has to be atonement made for you before you're not. So kingdom of God is not merely a political regime change. Number three, the kingdom of God is not just a synonym for the church's presence. This is how kingdom of God a lot of times is used in Roman Catholic theology, that the kingdom of God expands as the Roman Catholic church expands throughout the world. That's how they use it. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about an institutional church just going in different locations. And then lastly, the kingdom of God is not just something that comes at the end of time. All right. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that God's kingdom is only something that's purely future. Despite the fact that Jesus says things like, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come among you, and then he cast out demons. Right. He's showing this has begun. We often say about God's kingdom that it is already... And not yet. There's a sense in which it started, but there's a sense in which it's not complete, all right? We are not now in the new heavens and new earth. We have not all been bodily resurrected, all right? But there's a sense, a very real sense in which we're already seeing the the transformation that Christ wants to bring throughout the world started 2,000 years ago. So people often ask me, Zach, do we live in the end times? And the answer is yes, but we've lived in the end times for 2,000 years, Because the end times is a theological category for what happens when God pours out his spirit and people get up from the dead and demons are cast out and the gospel goes to the Gentiles. All right? So, yes, but we've also been there a long time. All right? Now, what is the kingdom of God? Let me give you a few definitions. Uh, Don't try to write all these down because some of them are very wordy, but just try to understand what this is. Here's the easiest way to think of it. So, Zach, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God is fixing the world, He does it through Christ. He does it through his death, burial, and resurrection. But the good news is that he is getting us back to Eden. The Bible starts in a garden, and Adam is commanded to subdue the whole earth. The Bible ends in a city, again with God together with man. Mission accomplished, right? God is fixing the world. He's getting us back to Eden in the person of Christ. Okay, so let me give you a few definitions of the gospel. Or maybe here's a good way to think of it before I give you these. Jeff said this last time. I thought it was really good. Think about what would the world look like If there was no more opposition to God, what would the world look like? If there was no fall, no sin, no rebellion, no demonic oppression, what would the world look like? Now, God's always ruled and reigned. He's always in control. To quote Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil, all right? He has to get his permission from God. But there's a very real sense in which there is rebellion against God and people raise their fist and shake it in the sky. What would the world look like if there was none of that? What would the world look like if Adam had never fallen? That's what God's trying to get us back to in the gospel. That's the good news. That through the death, burial, person, and resurrection and ministry of Christ, he's going to get us back to Eden. He is the second Adam, the last Adam, all right? So let me give you a few definitions. Graham Goldsworthy says that the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. All right, God's people in God's place under God's rule. George Eldon Ladd says that it is God's rule. Let me read you some quotes by a guy named G.K. Beale, who I think is a fantastic New Testament theologian. Just listen to these. These are, again, too long. If, you, if you're real uh, you know, type A like I do, I try to write them down anyway, even though I said not to, and uh, you'll just get lost. All right, so here we go. Let's talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Listen to these definitions. These are fantastic. The Old Testament is the story of God who progressively reestablishes his new creational kingdom out of chaos over a sinful people by his word and spirit through promise, covenant, and redemption resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this kingdom and judgment, either defeat or exile, for the unfaithful unto his glory. Here's the New Testament. Jesus' life, trials, death for sinners, and especially resurrection by the Spirit have launched the fulfillment of the eschatological, eschatological means end times, all right? eschatological, already not yet, new creational reign bestowed by grace through faith resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this new creational reign and resulting in judgment for the unbelieving unto the triune God's glory. Let me read you one more and then we'll talk because I I, I hate when people get up and just read forever. All right, so let me read you one more. This comes from a theologian named N.T. Wright who I agree with on some things but not on others. But let me read this. This is a great quote. He says this. The idea of good news, right, What we think of gospel. The idea of good news... For which an older English word, gospel, had two principal meanings for first century Jews. First, with roots in Isaiah, it meant the news of Yahweh's long awaited victory over evil and rescue of his people. Second, it was used in the Roman world of the ascension or birthday of the emperor. Since for Jesus and Paul, the announcements of God's inbreaking kingdom was both the fulfillment of prophecy and a challenge to the world's present rulers, gospel, that word gospel, became an important shorthand for both the message of Jesus himself and the apostolic message about him. Paul saw this message as itself the vehicle of God's saving power, okay? So I say all that to say yes and amen to personal salvation, amen. God is so gracious to choose so many when he doesn't have to choose any. If somebody breaks into my house and kills my wife and son, let's say five guys do that, and on the bench, on the trial, I decide to have mercy and forgive one, everyone would think I as insane. The fact that God forgives so many and is gracious to so many is insane. He has a crazy love for us. So yes and amen to personal salvation. Yes and amen to justification by faith. Justification by faith is the doormat to the kingdom. It's how we get in. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it. We are not Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. The only hope a sinner has is to throw themselves on a merciful Christ and hope that Christ extends that scepter and gives them mercy, and he does. But the gospel is a bigger message that's simply this. Yahweh reigns. Jesus is king. Jesus reigns. And if he reigns, everything else is going to be okay. Why do we get so fired up about politics? The answer is because if you have a bad leader, it hurts your country. And if you have a good leader, it helps your country. What does it look like to have a perfect leader? What does it look like to have no rebellion, no unjust laws? It looks like the kingdom of God. It looks like what Christ does, all right? The Old Testament prophets mentioned that when Christ's kingdom came or God's kingdom came, it would, the following things we would see, and I want, you to see that we, I want you to know that we see these kind of things in the New Testament. I've listed ten of them. Number one, you would see a reconstitution of scattered Israel. One of the promises in the Old Testament is that God will call back his people, Number two, you saw Gentiles coming to worship God, that one day when God's kingdom comes, the Gentiles will flock to Zion. How many people in here are ethnically Jewish? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. How'd we get here? All right? Gentiles flocking to Zion. All right? The gospel has gone out to all nations. Number three, sicknesses being cured. Okay? Sicknesses being cured. Demons being cast out. God crushing the enemy, crushing false gods. Number five, God having a king on the throne of Israel, i.e. Christ. Number six, release from the slavery of pagan nations. Number seven, sin being forgiven, that God would wash, though their sins were as scarlet, He would wash them white as snow. The oppressed being stood up for, when Jesus steps up in the temple, out of all the passages to read, when He reads out of Isaiah from the scroll, He talks about how God's Spirit is upon Him. To preach the good news to the poor and to release the captives and these kind of things, that God would relieve oppression. Okay? Resurrection of the dead, which has already begun in Jesus. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. It's not just that Jesus is raised, it's that he has already started that end times resurrection that we're all gonna take part in. He's the first one to do it. That's why the apostles are freaking out, that's why the end is near. Because that's an end times event. Jesus does in the middle of time what the Jews are expecting to happen at the end of time. That's why it freaks them out, okay? And then number 10, judgment of evildoers. Judgment of evildoers. So let's talk a little bit more. Let's draw on the board. I'm a big visual learner. Part of that's my ADD. Okay, so the way Jews conceived of time was in two major periods, okay? So let's draw a line. On this side of the line, they saw that as the present... You'll even see this language in Scripture, evil age. Present evil age. And then over here, they call this the age to come. You see this in Scripture. And in Jewish thinking, they thought, we live right here. We live under the effects of the fall. Demons oppress us, and we're sick, and we're ruled over by pagan nations, and we die, and God seems to exile us. But when Messiah comes... There's going to be a strong break and we'll instantly be in this age to come. And there'll be no more sickness or weeping or crying or pain. It'll be done. It'll be one swoop. Everybody with me so far on what, how Jews conceived of time? Now, what happens, though, is it more looks like this in the New Testament. It more looks like these ages overlap. Okay, look at this middle area right here. They overlap. That Messiah doesn't just come once. He comes again. He comes once to make Israel not enemies of God, to die for our sins and make atonement. But eventually he's going to come again to finish it all. He started the project, but eventually he's coming to finish it all. And we live right now in the overlap of the ages. We live in the present evil age and in the age to come at the same time. Do we still see death? Yep. Present evil age. Do we still see sickness? Yep. Present evil age. However... Are Gentiles and the people getting saved as the gospel goes to the nations? Yeah, age to come. Uh, Has the resurrection already started in Christ? Yeah, age to come. It's both. We live in the overlap of the ages. Here's the best example I can give you. It's not mine. I I just steal stuff from other people. Uh, The best example I can give you is the difference in World War II between V-Day and D-Day, okay? D-Day, Normandy, all right? The Allied troops storm the beaches of Normandy, okay? And they defeat... Uh, Hitler's troops there, and that is the last major decisive battle of World War II. There'll be some others, but that is really the beginning of the end. Once those beaches are taken, we know eventually Hitler is going to be overthrown. Everybody with me? Now, contrast that, though, with Victory Day, right, when the war's actually over. So Jesus' first coming is like D-Day. It's the Allied assault against the enemy and his forces, And when Jesus dies on a cross and is raised, he deals a decisive death blow to the devil. But we're not yet to V-Day. The kingdom has not been consummated. It's begun, but it's not finished. We live in the already, but the not yet. The already is here. The not yet is not yet here. All right? So as the troops storm the beaches of Normandy and that that battle is won, are there still battles to be fought? Yeah. Do troops still get shot and killed? Yeah. Yeah but they're able to do so with a sense of hope knowing the end is near, knowing eventually Hitler will be vanquished, eventually the war will be over, and then there'll just be crazy parties and dancing in the street, all right? The guy will dip kiss that nurse, you know, as he gets off the Navy ship or whatever it is, and things will be great, okay? But we're not there yet. We as Christians live in between D-Day and V-Day. Christ has already stormed the beaches of Normandy in his incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection. So there very much is a binding of the strong man. But it's not complete. The devil prowls around as a roaring lion. People still die. People still get sick. We're still demonically oppressed. There's still a lot of problems because we're waiting for V-Day. We are on our march as Christians to Berlin. And we live in the most exciting time in world history because we live, we live after Christ has come. The best time to be a soldier in World War II, if you have to be a soldier, is after D-Day, all right? That's where we live. We live in between the overlap of these two ages. Let me draw you another picture. Again, I apologize for my handwriting. Perhaps a lot of anger I haven't worked through comes out in those letters. (laughs) Okay, so let's draw it as a big uh, Venn diagram. Here. Okay, and this will be, uh, uh, let's do kingdom of God. Age to come. And here, let's do present evil age. Age. Okay. <clears throat> when Adam sins against God, when mankind rebels against God, what does that bring into the world? Let's name some things. What comes into the world that previously wasn't there when Adam sins against God? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. Great. Okay. So I'm gonna say, uh, yeah, I'll just write thorns and thistles. Thorns. With an R, and good luck spelling thistles. Okay, thorns and thistles, what else? Nailed it. Do what? Death. Death. I heard another one. Who else did What would you say? Pains and childbearing. Amen, ladies. All right. Uh, let's just do pain, because it is, what's interesting is you have God in Genesis saying, subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And then the curses correspond to those things they've been told them to do. When you try to subdue the earth, it will bear thorns and thistles. And when you try to be fruitful and multiply, there will be a lot of pain. Okay? But I'll put pain there because that's true with childbearing. But it's also extreme pain in other areas. All right? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. When, when will Christ come and, you know, deliver us from childrearing? <laughs> uh, thorns and thistles, death, pain, what else? Shame. Shame, good, very good. Shame, what else? Separation from God, I heard that, good. Oh, I know that's not spelled right. How many P's, how many T's, I don't care. What else? What was it? I heard somebody else say so. Temptation? Good, yeah, yeah. So you actually see, so temptation, you actually see before mankind sins, but now we give in to temptation. So I think that's still a good point because whereas Adam could have said no, there's a sense in which because we're born in our sin, when that phone rings, we pick up. Okay, good. So maybe a broken nature that makes you, you know, give in to temptation. I'll put brokenness. How about this? Demonic oppression. Okay. Again, you can't read this, but just pretend these are meaningful words, okay? Uh, So these are some bad things. Now, with Christ, what does he bring in? What comes in with, with the coming of Christ, what do you see? Name some stuff. Peace, instead of, uh, you know, brokenness and separation, you have peace between God and man and man and man, okay? What else? Eternal life, eternal life. very good. Instead of death, there's eternal life, eternal life, okay? What else? Forgiveness of sin. What was it? Uh, forgiveness of sin and what was the other one? Rest, rest. okay, sure, let's do rest, forgiveness, okay? What else? Truth, community. Yeah, let me, instead of writing them all out, let me just say it this way the opposite of all these things. Listen, Jesus is the anti Adam. Jesus is the Adam that Adam should have been. With Adam's sin, you get death, you get demonic oppression, you get sickness, you get separation from God, uh, you get his wrath, you get shame. They're embarrassed of their nakedness. But with Christ, when he comes in his ministry, he is undoing those things. Listen, the gospel doesn't just occur at the end of the gospels with his death, burial, and resurrection. The whole thing is the gospel. It's not as though Jesus is going around, and we have a tendency sometimes to read the New Testament this way, it's not as though he's just going around doing some cool miracles and magic tricks. Oh, cool, Jesus healed this guy. Oh, cool, he cast out this demon. That's cool. When are we going to get to the death and resurrection? When Jesus is casting out a demon, he's showing that in a small way another beachhead has been taken at Normandy. When Jesus cast out demons, it means I'm fixing it. When he heals people, it means I'm fixing what's broken in the world. When he shows peace to the woman that cries at his feet, it means he's giving grace where she feels a ton of shame. You need to see the whole ministry of Jesus as fighting what went wrong in the fall, fighting what happened in Adam. That's what Jesus is doing. So notice, that story becomes bigger. It's not just his death, burial, and resurrection, although yes and amen, it's that, and probably centrally that. But in his entire ministry, he's not... He's earning our salvation for us. He's keeping God's law like we should have done. He's caring for the poor like we should have done. He's resisting temptation in the wilderness like we and Israel should have done, but instead we failed. Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. He has taken the punishment we deserve on the cross. And in so doing, he begins that end times reign of God. It's a bigger message. And when you see this, by the way, it changes your entire life because now you realize God is about redeeming the whole world and it gives your entire life meaning. It's not as though God is only pleased with you or you're only serving him when you're doing churchy things, when you're reading your Bible or praying or coming to church. It means in all of your life, God is using his church to help push back the darkness, to help reach people for Christ, to honor him, to love him. God is fixing the whole world. The good news is that God is king. And if God is king, everything's eventually going to be okay. And the way that he calls sinners to himself is through the proclamation of the gospel, the kingdom, okay? So what I want to do is I want to now present the gospel. I want to walk through the entire Bible in, I don't know, five, ten minutes, using kingdom language, okay? So I want you to see how prevalent this is throughout the, throughout the Bible. The story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, the story of Christianity. So if you hear nothing else from all this, and you're like, Zach drew this weird MasterCard symbol up there, and I don't really understand, this is the thing I want you to hang on to, okay? What is the story of the Bible? What is the story of the gospel? Here's what it is. The story begins with a king, okay? That king's name is Yahweh. His name is not Allah. His name is not Ganesh. His name is not Shiva. His name is not Thor. He is the Trinitarian God of the Bible, amen? And he is king. He rules over all. And what he does is he creates everything for his glory. He doesn't need it. I remember asking my sweet mother when I was a kid that uh, why God created us. And it was, you know, so that he could have friends or so that he uh, wouldn't be lonely or just because he loves us and these kind of things. God is not up in heaven having a tea party with his stuffed animals because he doesn't have any friends. There's always love within the Trinitarian community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And so this God creates so that He might glorify himself in the same way that an artist might create a painting and step back and look at that painting and revel in his work and say, that's brilliant. It reflects the brilliance of the painter. So God creates the stars. He creates the galaxies. He creates the earth. He creates humans. And he steps back and says, it is good. And at this point, everything's good. God is a king. He's ruling over everything. Because he's a good king, nothing goes bad in his kingdom. And he creates us, he creates us, we humans, to be like little kings, little vice regents. Now, let me be extremely clear as I say this. We are not gods, all right? God is infinitely different than us. He alone is God, and there is no other. Isaiah says that like a thousand times, okay? So let me just be really clear that we don't confuse creation and uh, creator, okay? But what God creates us to do is the same thing that he does, Jeff talked about this a little bit last week, that kings in the Old Testament, what they would do in Old Testament times is they would create a garden, like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon or Solomon's Gardens, and what they would do is they would put a statue of themselves in that garden. They'd put a statue of themselves wherever they were. So if I'm the king of Egypt, I'm going to put a statue of myself in Cairo, in Memphis, Memphis, Egypt, not Tennessee, uh, in these different places in Egypt, and that way as people go in and out of Egypt, when they see that statue, they say, Pharaoh rules here. This is Pharaoh's territory. Well, what God does is he creates mankind in his image, which does not mean we are gods. It also does not mean we look like God, all right? God is spirit. He does not have the, the, God the Father, right? So Jesus takes on humanity. God the Father, though, is spirit. He does not have uh, spatial dimensions and these kind of things. But we're called to do what God does. God rules. He's a king, capital K, and he makes us over the earth and says, rule this for my glory. When it says that we're made in God's image, by the way, the Hebrew word is tselem. It's the same word used as images or idols. One of the reasons you cannot make an idol of God is because nothing is like him. The closest you can come is a human, and even us, we're infinitely different. But the idea is that wherever you go in the world and you see a human, you're supposed to think Yahweh rules here. Yahweh rules here. Yahweh rules here. So he creates mankind in his image. And he says, ready? Be a king, basically. Subdue the earth. Rule over it. The animals submit to you. You, you know, till the grounds and garden and do all of this. And if the story would have just ended in Genesis 2, everything would have been great. But instead, a serpent comes and basically says, hey, why don't you be a king on your own? You don't need God. Why don't you eat from this tree and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't have fear of him, which is the beginning of knowledge, but do it on your own autonomy. And in that moment mankind commits not just sin but treason. All right? Sin is against God, it's treason, it's civil war. And when that happens, God's when that happens God curses everything. If you want to walk away from the source of all good and all joy and all life, you will get the opposite of those things. You will get death and pain and shame and separation from God. And what you see there is under God's allowance, you see a rival kingdom set up. You see this kingdom of the devil that's agreed to by man, in a sense, set up. You see it with Babel, you see it with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you see it with Rome, you see these worldly kingdoms that seem to not be following God's prerogatives, but the prerogatives of the enemy, self-glorification. But God in his mercy. So in the words of Martin Luther, if the world had treated me the way I had treated God, I would kick the vile, wretched thing to pieces. Instead of doing that, what God does instead is he promises to fix it. Right there in Genesis 3.15, he says that through the seed of the woman is going to come somebody who's going to crush that serpent's head. And the rest of the Bible, we get Genesis 1 and 2 with everything perfect. Genesis 3 and onwards is all how God is fixing it, how he's putting the world back to rights. And what you do is you start to see God fixing this. You see him come to Abraham and say, through your seed, I'm going to send somebody who's going to bless the nations. I'm going to call people back to myself. You see this with Moses. What is the Exodus if not the gospel of the Old Testament? where God's people are enslaved to a ruler that they cannot defeat, and so God sends his Messiah deliverer person to redeem them away from that, why God judges them, makes them his people, brings them into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. That is a picture of the gospel. If you were to go to a Jew back before the time of Christ and said, tell me the good news of Judaism, that's exactly the message they'd tell you. You see this with people like King David. The story of David and Goliath is not just how the little guy sometimes beats the big guy right? We read it right before a football game or something. That's not the point. It's that Israel is enslaved to an enemy they cannot defeat, so God sends a king, a Messiah, a deliverer that through his power will strike down their enemy and deliver them. You see all these pictures of what's supposed to happen in Christ. God uses his people Israel in the Old Testament. Israel is supposed to be kind of like a second humanity, kind of like a second Adam, They're supposed to keep God's law. They're supposed to not worship demons. They're supposed to uh, be faithful. They're not supposed to test God. But what do you see in the Old Testament? That Israel does the same thing that the Gentiles are doing. It's almost like if a ship got lost at sea, and so we sent the coast guard to go rescue that ship, and then they got lost at sea. That's kind of the story of Israel. Israel is God's coast guard that also got lost at sea because they couldn't keep his law because they're broken and sinful as well. So at the end of the Old Testament, you have a pretty bleak situation. You have all humanity, in a sense, lost at sea. And then all of a sudden, you get this Galilean peasant coming and saying, I'm putting it back to rights. I'm fixing it. Right? God looks across broken humanity and says, If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And so Christ comes down, takes on humanity, the second person of the Trinity, and He is the Israel that Israel should have been. He keeps God's law, whereas Israel failed. He doesn't test God in the wilderness when He's tempted for forty days, just like the Israelites did test God when they were in the wilderness for forty years. The Israelites went through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Jesus goes through the Jordan River in His baptism. Israel had twelve disciples. Je- or, sorry, Israel had twelve tribes. Jesus has twelve disciples. Jesus is Israel personified. He is succeeding where Israel has failed. And what he does is he proclaims this message, wait for it, wait for it, i got to build suspense, drum roll, the kingdom of God is among you. He heals people and he casts out demons and he proclaims peace and he sends his disciples to heal and he dies on a Roman cross to take our punishment for our sins so that we can no longer be traitors who have committed treason against God but can have fellowship with him. By the way, what do the Romans put over Jesus' cross? King of the Jews, there it is, kingdom message. What do the Jews say as they're going to have Jesus crucified? He says he's a king, and we have no king but Caesar. You see, kingdom of God, political kind of language used again. What does the, the disciple, or the disciple, what does the, the criminal that's hanging on the cross next to Jesus say? He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I just can't get away from it. It's ever, you're going to see it everywhere now, all right? By the way, John Calvin called the criminal on the cross the world's ultimate theologian because he realized that he could do nothing other than hang there and look to Jesus and his kingdom for mercy. Okay? That's what you see. That's the bigger message of the gospel. That's the message of the kingdom of God. Um, <clears throat> I want to, uh, I want to, oh, and sorry, a few more parts of this story and then I want to mention something. Um, you then see Jesus reigning and ruling as king. God resurrects Jesus and Jesus sends out his emissaries. He sends out his ambassadors, if you will, to the world, to call them to themselves, or to call them to himself. And one day the king will return, the return of the king. Right, if you want to use a good Tolkien's uh, title there, he will come back and he will complete what he's already started. How patient and merciful is God. How many kings in history, when there's been a rebellion, have waited thousands and thousands and thousands of years before killing the rebels? God is patient, very, very patient, very kind, very slow to anger. OK? Uh, I want to tell you a little story to put this in some historical context. Um, The Jews living in Jerusalem rebelled against Rome, all right, in about 66 AD. The temple is eventually destroyed in 70 AD. And so Rome hires this young Jewish historian named Josephus. Anybody ever heard of Josephus? The Romans hire this young Jewish historian named Josephus. And what they're hiring him to do is they say, go talk to your fellow Jews. Go tell them to stop fighting against Rome it's impossible to lay down your arms. We're eventually going to win. We don't want to have to destroy the temple and have to kill everybody, but if they won't lay down their weapons, we will. Go talk to this rebel brigand of Jews and tell them to stop fighting against Rome. Okay? Josephus agrees, and he goes to talk to this group of Jews who's fighting against Rome, and here's what he says to them in Greek. Okay? He says, All right? What does that mean in Greek? Here's what it means. Ready? Repent and believe in me. That's the language that Josephus uses to say, stop fighting against this empire, stop fighting against this kingdom, lay down your weapons and join Rome, is repent and believe in me. Can you think of somebody else around the time of the first century that says something similar to that? Jesus! And guess what? He means the same thing that Josephus means. Stop fighting against God's kingdom, lay down your weapons. Put down your sword of greed and put down your spear of violence and put down your chariot of lust or whatever it is. Stop fighting against God and submit to his kingdom. He's a good king. He will give you grace. He offers full pardon. He offers full clemency for anybody that will bow the knee and call Jesus Lord. Okay? That's the gospel. That's the message. That through the ministry, life, person, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God is putting the world back to rights and he's already, it's already started. What an exciting time to live. And the reason I want you to see this as such a big cosmic message is I'm afraid that it's so easy if we only think of the gospel as personal salvation or we only think of the gospel as justification by faith, we have a tendency to separate our Christian lives from the rest of our lives. When you realize that God is about fixing the entire world and he's going to do so first and primarily through the gospel, the church's job is not to primarily just be some sort of social activist group. Our job primarily is to preach the gospel. The apostles teach God's word, and they pray, and they preach the gospel. And we do meet other needs, all right? But those are as a result of the primary thing we do, which are teaching people about Christ, okay? And, and decide, making disciples, submitting to him. But my fear is that if we don't realize that the, the gospel is a bigger kingdom message, that we will separate our spiritual lives from our normal lives, When you realize that God is redeeming the whole cosmos, when you realize he's fixing and redeeming everything, that changes the way you do marriage. That changes the way you vote. That changes the way you interact with your neighbor. That changes who you see your enemies as. Because according to Christ, we as Christians don't have enemies that bear flesh and blood. Okay? Uh, It changes your view on everything. Everything. I want us to have a kingdom-minded worldview in all areas of life. I heard a guy say this one time. I thought it was really wise. He was talking about why. So a lot of times in ministry, as pastors and ministers, we get a chance to minister to people with marriage troubles. And think of the difference between the person that just says, I've got a really, really bad marriage, and this is my only shot, so I've got to get out of here so that I can go have fun and make the most of my life. Versus, as I've heard another person wisely say, at the resurrection, I'm not going to wish I had left my spouse. When we see this bigger kingdom cosmic message, it changes everything.